Radio. Church Fathers, from St. Justin Martyr to St. Anthony. A talk by Kevin Wagner at the Immaculata Mission School 2014, held at the Sacred Heart Retreat Centre in Croydon, Melbourne. When we know our Father, we come to know more about who we are. I mean, there's a, a great interest now in us, uh, in people wanting to send off their DNA to find out you know, who their real ancestors are. And there's a certain intrigue to that. And I think there's a, there's a part of us that wants to know, you know way back where we've come from and, uh, and who, our, who our fathers are. And it's, it's very good to take that same attitude when it comes to our faith because it's our fathers who have actually helped us to understand uh, the faith, to shape the faith, uh, and to hand it down faithfully from, from Christ himself. So just a few, few words on, on what we mean by the fathers of the church or by the study of patristics, okay, from the Latin pater. Or, uh, and so patristic... Patristics is, is really just the study of the, the theology and the philosophy and the lives of the fathers. And in the Christian tradition, we understand father to be the one who represents, uh, or who is, sorry, the, the progenitor of the family. And uh, the, so he, he helps to give life to the family and in the Christian sense too, we see the father as the head of the family. Uh, and so the father is responsible for the welfare of his family and, and he has a particular authoritative role. Uh, also, in the Christian sense, we understand the father to be the guardian and mediator of experience and tradition. So he's the authentic teacher, and particularly of the faith. So this... This, uh, these functions of guarding and mediating experience and tradition are very important. Uh, currently, I am living with my wife and her parents, and her father is 90. And it's intriguing for us to discover more and more about him. 60 years ago, he arrived in Australia on a boat from Greece. He's taken out his... Uh, the, the box, the, the bag that he brought here with him from Greece, or actually from Alexandria. He's Greek, but Alexandrian. And, uh, and it's fascinating to see the things that were important to him, the things that he kept in that suitcase over the last 60 years, because it says something about who he is, and it also says something about how he has shaped his family. So I actually learned more about my wife uh, by discovering more about her father. It's, it's quite uh, fascinating and it's a real gift. And of course I have to live with my mother-in-law as well and so that's a great sacrifice and a, and a path to holiness. And she's not here to dispute that. Uh, now the patristics as well, we can, we can define uh, who a father is in the sense of patristics by four main tests. Okay, there's lots of fathers in the faith. You know, Pope Francis is our father in the faith. Uh, Archbishop Hart is uh, the father of the faith in this, diocese, this archdiocese. Uh, but the fathers of the church in this sense of patristics 
we, we follow these uh, four general tests. First of all, the fathers, uh, or this, this extraneous to the four tests, the patristic era extends from the first century, so straight after the apostles, right through to 636 AD in the West, so 636, and 729 in the East. And there's a slight difference there because in the West, the last great father uh, was considered to be St. Isidore of Seville, who died in 636, and St. John Damascene was the last great father of the, of the East, and he died in 729. So, so to be considered a father in the strict sense, uh, they have to fall in that time range. But then there's four tests to see who's a father. Just because you were born in that period and you taught a few things doesn't necessarily make you a father of the church. But having said that, these tests uh, are variously applied, so they're not completely strict. First of all, then, the, is the test of antiquity. So they have to fall in that time frame I've just mentioned. Secondly, they have to teach orthodox doctrine. Now, there is some room for movement there because sometimes a father teaches something and it, at the time it seemed quite orthodox or it certainly wasn't unorthodox, heterodox. But later on, as things got worked out, I realised actually that's, that's a little bit off. But they're still considered a father of the church. They also had to live a holy life in the eyes of the faithful. Now, holiness uh, can be variously uh, understood. Saint Jerome, if we, if we look at him, may not appear in, according to our normal ideas as, as being a holy man. He was pretty fiery, temp had a strong temper and things, but he still was considered a holy man. Uh, and Fourthly, the church needs to have recognised that person and their teaching. Okay, so they're the, the tests for, to say who a father is. Now, uh, the patristic era is, is an incredibly important time in our history, particularly because the most important, uh, most important councils were in that, in that time, or some of the most important councils, and particularly councils which determined our creed, so what we believe. And there was a lot of fine-tuning that had to happen over the course of the different councils. So what I would like to do today is to try something that's possibly impossible, uh, and but that's to give you a, a taste of a number of different fathers so that you can then go off and read the fathers themselves. Uh, there's lots of really great little books that you can get that give you little tasters of the fathers, and I would recommend those if you, if you haven't read these ancient texts before, because, let's be honest, some of the, uh, some of the patristic texts can be quite laborious. So let's go back. We want to start with uh, Justin Martyr uh, and then we'll move 
to Athanasius from Alexandria. Uh, then we'll have a look at, in what particular order? We might look at John Chrysostom, who was the Patriarch of Constantinople in the late fourth century. Uh, we will look at St. Ambrose, who is, is very well known, particularly uh, for being a mentor of St. Augustine. We'll try and have a look at St. Augustine as well. And the Cappadocian Fathers, this is sort of an area, sort of, I think it's modern-day Turkey, uh, and there were three of them, Basil, Gregory, and who were brothers, and another Gregory, Nazianzen, uh, whose feast we just celebrated last week. Yes. Uh, so we'll try and look at a number of those guys. And yeah, so these these little books, I highly recommend you to look at them because reading these ancient texts is is sometimes quite challenging. Uh, and so these these smaller texts give you uh, a better context. Uh, but one thing I would say is that the fathers wrote for particular reasons. So oftentimes they would write a letter opposing some particular heresy or some particular practice. And so it's important to know what they were trying to oppose. Because sometimes, as well, the people have written particular documents that try to push a, a particular theological view. And the, the patristic writer needs to address every single point <clears throat> And sometimes the way they do that is, let's be honest, very boring for us modern people. So let's move on. St. Justin Martyr. He was an apologist. But what was an apologist? An apologist was not someone who said, sorry, I'm Catholic. <laughs> this is not what an apologist is. Okay? An apologist was someone who... Uh, who who announced what the faith was and said, this is our faith and this is why we believe it. And uh, Justin was uh, particularly needing to do this because at the time there were great persecutions. There were 10 major persecutions up until about 310, I think it was. So these were times when loads of Christians were killed because they were defending their faith. And we should mention that uh, some people decided not to defend their faith, like not stand up for their faith, and so they survived and then later on wanted to be accepted back into the church, back into communion, and this became an issue for some of the early councils as well. How do we deal with these people who publicly have sacrificed to the Roman gods, who want to come back and uh, and be part of this communion and so there were various solutions and uh, sometimes it meant that they were separate and sometimes it meant that the church welcomed them back and but it certainly was a, an area of conflict so uh, the apologists of which Justin was one uh, often wrote to educated converts who needed to know more about their faith uh, they often wrote to philosophers because unlike today where philosophers are just people who work at McDonald's uh, because that's all their arts degree will get them, 
Uh, uh, sorry, originally I did mathematics at Sydney Uni and the philosophers, philosophers were the people who hung out in Manning Bar. Uh, and uh, so, unlike Mao, the philosophers were often held very high positions in government because they were the ones who could help direct the emperor uh, in, in his policy and also could help increase his status. Um, because philosophers were, were usually very well trained in rhetoric, in the art of speaking and writing. And so these were handy people to have around. Uh, the apologists also wrote directly to the emperors uh, because they were the ones who were ultimately responsible as to who was going to live and die. Uh, and uh, then they also wrote to the Jews uh, because... Uh, this was an ongoing conflict between the Jews and the Christians and the Jews would sometimes denounce the Christians to the emperor or to the authorities uh, and so it was important to try and uh, bring the Jews on side. And also, of course, there was some proselytizing. They were trying to bring Jews across to the Christian faith. So, Justin, he was probably born at the end of the first century or the beginning of the second, we're not exactly sure, but he died sometime between 162 and 167. Uh, maybe we just say one thing on this. The dates are really general, aren't they? You get this a lot with the fathers, with church history in general. Okay? We, we just don't know a lot. Uh, so it's important if someone starts saying, oh, definitely this happened and this and this and this, uh, or definitely a, a, an event unfolded like this. When you're talking you know, 1,800, 1,700 years ago, you know, there's not very much that is really, really very clear. And so we need to be, be careful before we make absolute statements. Uh, so he was born... Uh, near ancient Shechem, which is in uh, the West Bank. Uh, and there's a suggestion he was perhaps a Samaritan by birth, but we don't really know that. Uh, he's, he's a Gentile. Uh, and he, he's really quite well known for the fact that he, he sort of tried a number of different philosophies before he ended up with Christianity, which was seen as the, the great philosophy, I guess. Uh, so he tried, you know, all the standard Greek schools, schools in a, in, a, in a sense. He went to the Stoics, he went to the Aristotelians, the Pythagoreans, the Platonists. Pythagoreans weren't just known for coming up with a cool formula for, for a right angle triangle, okay? They did lots of good stuff, lots of interesting stuff. Uh, so uh, when he became a Christian, he actually took the pallium, uh, or the dress of the philosopher uh, because he saw that finally this was the one true philosophy and he wanted to tell people about, about Christ. So for him it was like the fulfilment of all these other, all these other philosophies. Uh, so during the reign of uh, the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, uh, which was from about 138 to 161, uh, he uh, spent his time... Justin spent his time in Rome uh, and he founded a school there and he was teaching. So uh, perhaps it's important to, to say that his conversion 
We don't really know exactly how it happened, but one of his books give us, gives us a little bit of a hint. It's written quite mythologically, but he supposedly encountered uh, a Jew on a beach, on a deserted beach, and, uh, and had a great discussion, and, uh, and this was somehow involved in his conversion. This is called The, the Dialogue with Trifo. Uh, so he has two other works apart from that, the first apology and the second apology. Uh, and the first one he wrote to, uh, directly to the, the emperor. Uh, and we don't really know whether the emperor heard it, but uh, certainly he wanted to try and defend the faith as high up as possible. Uh, there's a few key things that come out of these apologies and I'd just like to mention three things Uh, first of all it might seem strange to us but Christians were actually accused of being atheists by the Romans Okay, and this was because they refused to sacrifice to the Roman gods okay now, the Roman gods were really, really important for the running of the, of the empire because if you pray to the gods, good things happen. You win the wars, uh, the, the grain grows that year, uh, everyone has enough to eat. You know, the whole success of the empire depended on being able to, uh, to pray, to, uh, to have the blessing of the gods. So when Christians decided, no, well, we're not going to actually pray to your gods, we've got one true God, uh, this became quite a problem. So they were accused of being atheists. So Justin actually says, well, we are atheists in regard to these gods that you have, but not with respect to the most true God, the father of righteousness and temperance and the other virtues, who is free from all impurity, Because remember, the Roman gods and the Greek gods before that, they were quite humanistic in in their way. They were were personified uh, much more than than, than we probably imagine. And they did things like they had sex with each other and they stole people and, and raped people and did all sorts of things that were just wrong, you know. And so the the God of the Christians, our God, is free of all these impurities. Uh, so, uh, so Justin sets out who we actually believe in. And uh, later on he says, the teacher of, our, of these things, of the, the Christian belief, is Jesus Christ. And he says he was crucified under Pontius Pilate uh, in the time of Tiberius Caesar, and uh, we've learnt that he's the son of the true God himself, uh, and holding him in the second place, uh, the you know, so Jesus in the second place, and then the prof- prophetic spirit is in the third. And he sets out trying to prove that in this apology. So first of all, accused of atheism, okay, and Justin says, "Yep, well, we are atheists in that sense." Uh, then in the apology he sets out what the Christian moral life is and, uh, and how this is quite different to what the Romans experienced. So uh, 
he, he sets out, for example, the, the view that if someone strikes you on one cheek, offer him the other. Uh, if, if he asks you to go one mile, go two miles. Uh, and this, is, this would have been, for the Romans, an, in, uh, an incredible ethic, an in, a, a very different way of, of living. Because, as we know, the, the Roman way of living was, uh, was very much a violent life. I mean, the Colosseum is, or the Colosseums that we see around the Roman Empire are a testimony of this. And the, the fact that the Roman war machine was, uh, was really the lifeblood of the empire was, is, is a pretty clear sign that violence was, was sort of in the blood of the Romans. Uh, so he also sets out the, the Christian teaching on uh, continents, uh, civil obedience, uh, the fact that we don't approve of exposing children. You know, the, the Roman practice was often to uh, expose babies to the sun if they didn't want them. Christians didn't do that. That was a bit different. Uh, society perhaps hasn't come so far, have we? Uh, and uh, so it was, it was quite an important thing that Justin was doing to to really lay out for us these things that, that seem, it would have seemed at the time quite different to uh, the society, at the uh, Roman society. Now the third thing uh, that's really important from Justin is his, uh, his doctrine of the Logos. Uh, now uh, the Logos is variously translated, but in John's Gospel, we see the word logos is translated as the word often. So in the, the beginning of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the logos, okay? And the logos dwelt um, uh, amongst us. And so this idea that the second person of the, and of the, the, second person of the Trinity, the logos, uh, yeah, sorry, the, the second person of the Trinity was the Logos, was very important for trying to understand how on earth it was possible for anyone to speak truth before Jesus came to earth. Because there, was, there were people, very good people, good philosophers, for example, before the time of Jesus, who were somehow able to tap into what is really true. So people like Plato and Aristotle, they, would, they came up with various philosophies that, that just had this seed of truth in them. And so for Justin, he came to, he, he had studied these other philosophies, right? And so he, he'd come to Christianity not directly from paganism or from Satanism, he hasn't come from that far. He's come from something that's sort of, there's some truth to it. And he's discovered more and more, there's, there's more truth here. And then finally when he's come to Christianity, he's gone, yeah, actually, this is true. This is the complete truth. And so he, he was thinking, well, how on earth could these other people have had this truth if they don't have Christ? And so his... His understanding, and this is an un understanding that has con continued throughout tradition, uh, throughout our history, 
uh, is that the, these people who had spoken the truth before Christ had received something of this Logos. So this, what they'd received was the seed of this Logos, Logos Spermatikos. And this is because all people are created in the likeness and image of God, and so they share something of God because we're all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And so somehow throughout our, uh, our history we've been able to retain this seed of truth. And this is, this is why when we, we come later to, to Basil the Great, uh, we hear Basil say, well, how do, we, how do we approach secular learning, secular culture? And he says, he writes a letter to young men and says, okay, well, you should approach culture, secular culture, like a bee approaches flowers. He takes a little bit from each. He takes what's good from each flower. And this is the same way we should approach uh, secular culture. We take what is good and we use it for the, for the purpose of the gospel. This was really important for all the fathers and it's a, it's a, it's a common thread where a lot of the fathers had to get some education somewhere. You can't just come out and say brilliant things. Well, some people could like St. Anthony because they were intensely holy people and prophets, really. Uh, but generally, these were very educated people. And where do you get your education in a society where Christianity is illegal? Well, you get it from the traditional schools. So you go and see a, your local Platonist and you hear what he's got to say. You listen to your Stoic and hear what he's got to say. And this was actually, a, uh, this became in, in some Christian circles frowned upon. They would say, okay, but you know, you're Christian, you've got to just take from Christianity what you can. You know, take from the Bible and from the teachings of the, of the fathers and that's it. But what Basil said was, no, you can actually go to these, these other sources. So our, our example would be we can go and watch a secular movie. Okay, it's okay. You're not going to go to hell. Okay, okay, there's somewhere you might. But generally you can go there and you can watch and see and maybe there's something in there that will actually help you to evangelize. Maybe there's something in that that helps you to understand your faith more deeply. Okay? Of course we have to be discerning, and Basil was getting at this when he talked about the bee, just taking what's good from each flower. So this seed of the Logos becomes a theme throughout all of Christianity. Okay, I think for now we can, we can leave Justin there. Uh, and move on to consider one of the most important events of the patristic era, uh, and that is the, the conversion of Constantine. Uh, you probably know pretty much what happened. Basically, he, uh, he went to fight a battle. No, you don't know what happened. Okay. Uh, he, 
he was going to, to fight a battle. Uh, he was a great emperor at this stage, and, and he, uh, uh, he, he called on the name of, of, of his father's God, the God of the Christians. And basically he saw a sign, an, uh, an image, and it said, by this sign you will conquer. Okay, and it was the Cairo, the, uh, the just Google it, <laughs> um, to the letters of Christ's name. Uh, okay, so, so he had this painted tradition. So as he painted this on all the shields of, of his army, he won a great battle, and uh, over time he had this conversion. Now, he wasn't baptised probably until he was on his deathbed, but he, he was essentially Christian all this time and even when he was baptised he actually was probably baptised by a, an Aryan, a heretic uh, but he was Christian and he did a huge amount for Christianity because the starters he stopped the persecutions of Christians and then uh, in uh, 313 we celebrated the 1700th anniversary last year uh, in Milan he signed the Edict of Tolerance uh, so, uh, the 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 whole battle is very fascinating too. But anyway, uh, we'll move on. Uh, the next really important event after the conversion of Constantine was the Council of Nicaea, which was called by Constantine, uh, and this was called to resolve the issue of uh, of Arianism principally and a few other issues as well. Uh, and the issue of Arianism was that there was this, this priest in Alexandria who was saying, okay, there was a time when, uh, when Jesus was not, okay? Uh, and so this was, this was a, a, an issue that plagued all of the 4th century pretty much and into the 5th in various forms. And so the Council of Nicaea was was proclaimed by Constantine basically to avoid uh, bloodshed, which it did a little bit. Uh, and we'll talk more about it when we get to Athanasius because he was one of the keys of this. Actually, let's jump straight, at, straight to Athanasius. So Athanasius was born around 298 in Alexandria. Uh, so he actually grew up in a city that experienced the great persecutions. Uh, and so he may very well have seen bloodshed and uh, uh, the, the historic, well, sorry, the traditional report is that uh, Athanasius was a young boy and the bishop Alexander, it gets very confusing with names, boy. Uh, so the bishop of Alexandria was Alexander, makes sense. Uh, and tradition says he, he looked out the window and he saw Athanasius playing with some boys uh, in the street, and uh, Athanasius was playing the role of the bishop in the game. Okay, a bit like you might play. You know, kids, I've heard kids play mass, and you, know, you often hear priests you know, in their testimonies go, oh, "Yeah, I used to play mass at home. We didn't do that. We just played football." Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so it was sort of. We don't know whether that's true or not, but either way, it's a beautiful story. Uh, now, there's another sort of tradition that the Coptics have, uh, which is that his, Athanasius, 
mum was quite wealthy and she was a pagan and uh, she tried to get Athanasius to marry. And so she actually used to take beautiful girls and adorn them and perfume them and make them enter into his bedroom and sleep near him to try and, you know, convince him. But he would wake up and he'd beat them and drive them away. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but it's certainly the Coptic, in the Coptic tradition. Okay, so in the end, obviously, he, uh, he became firstly a deacon and he was at the Council of Nicaea and uh, it, it, we're not sure exactly how much of an influence he had on Alexander uh, in helping to, to shape uh, Alexander's views to, to fight Arianism, but uh, quite possibly there would have been strong discussions between them. Uh, we see later on... Uh, his, he wrote a, a book on the Incarnation uh, and, and there's, it's really Nicene Christology so it's, it's an important one to have a read of. Now, he ended up succeeding Bishop Alexander as the Bishop of, of uh, Alexandria and he, he became quite famous for the fact that he kept getting exiled because he would stand up for the faith. Okay, now to get exiled as many times as he did, I think it was five times within 20, uh, sorry, he had 20 years of being in exile in his life, five different times he was exiled. To have that happen means that you're pretty stubborn, okay, but clearly he needed to be, didn't he? He, he needed to defend the Nicene faith uh, and, uh, and he's really... Uh, such an important figure for us. Uh, the, the slogan that we remember Athanasius by is Athanasius contra mundum, which means Athanasius against the world. And it was really a bit like that at times. He really had to defend the faith with very little support from other bishops uh, and the, the, gov the governors and the emperor. Uh, so... Uh, it's certainly true that he, uh, he was having to fight a lot. Uh, the whole story of his exiles is a little monotonous because basically he does something, he gets exiled, he does something, he comes back and this happens a lot. But he did spend a bit of time, seven year, the last seven years of his life, in a relative peace back in Alexandria, which is nice. Uh, now, Athanasius is really important for us uh, because of his, uh, the fact that he has he had this relationship with St. Anthony of the desert, who was the first great desert father. And Athanasius handed down to us a book uh, on uh, Saint, the life of St. Anthony, and it's, it's really an incredible read. Okay? It was like a number one bestseller, you know, across the empire, you know, and beyond uh, at the time. It was, he wrote it just after Anthony died. Uh, he, he got to know him because when he'd get sent into exile, he'd often escape to the desert and he'd hide in the desert with Anthony and, and the, other, uh, the other monks there. Uh, and I'd just like to read you a little bit from the life of St. Anthony because it gives us an insight into who Anthony was, and it also helps us to understand uh, a little bit of what uh, 
what attracted Athanasius. Uh, yes. St. Anthony of the Desert. No, the, he's the, uh, yeah, the great father of the desert. Uh, so, Anthony. After the death of his father and mother, he was left alone with one little sister. His age was about 18 or 20, and on him the care of both home and sister rested. Now, it was not six months after the death. It's a bit like Darcy, isn't it? All those people who read that were subjected to pride and prejudice by your wife. Eight hours. Um, okay, so... Uh, now, it was not six months after the death of his parents and going according to custom into the Lord's house, he communed with himself and reflected as he walked how the apostles left all and followed the Saviour and how they in the acts of the apostles sold their possessions and brought and laid them at the apostles' feet for distribution to the needy and what and how great a hope was laid up for them in heaven. Pondering over these things, he entered the church, and it happened the gospel was being read. And he heard the Lord saying to the rich man, If you would be perfect, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and come and follow me, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Anthony, as though God had put him in mind of the saints, and the passage had been read on his account, went out immediately from the church and gave the possessions of his forefathers to the villagers, there were 300 acres, productive and very fair. Uh, and all the rest that was movable he sold. And having got together much money, he gave it to the poor, reserving a little, however, for his sister's sake. That's nice of him. And again, as he went into the church, hearing the Lord say in the gospel, be not anxious for tomorrow, he could stay no longer, but went out and gave those things also to the poor. Having committed his sister to known and faithful virgins and put her into a convent to be brought up, he henceforth devoted himself outside his house to discipline, taking heed to himself and training himself with patience. Nice big brother. Thanks very much. <laughs> uh, so, it's, we do things a little bit differently now, don't we? Uh, now, Anthony is really famous for the different uh, temptations he faced in the desert. Uh, and... And he had some really strong battles with, with the devil, you know, as he, as he would sleep, you know, uh, stories of his, everything being on fire in his room and all this ruckus, and, you know, but he was never touched. He was, he was protected. And, uh, and uh, Athanasius's account of Anthony really helped to, to start the monastic movement in Europe because people got wind of this, of this book and started to read it and start going, well, actually, how do we live like this? We don't have deserts in Europe. What do we do? Where do we go? Uh, obviously, a lot of people did go to the deserts to follow Anthony and, you know, monastic communities developed there. And we still see some of those today. I mean, even in, you know, just outside of Jerusalem, we see there's, in the valleys there, there's, there's uh, ancient monasteries. Uh, but in Europe people decided to, to think other ways as to how they might uh, uh, escape to a, a spiritual desert, well, escape to a desert to enter more deeply into the spiritual life. And uh, we'll see when we get to Basil that, uh, that Basil was certainly inspired by the story of St. Anthony and came up uh, with a monastic community and developed one of the earliest rules 
for monastic life. Uh, so Athanasius is really important, as we said, for uh, understanding Christ, so Christology and the Incarnation. Uh, I would suggest that if you, if you want to read about Athanasius, that you would start by reading The Life of St. Anthony and then to read uh, On the Incarnation, the Incarnazione. Uh, it, it's an important book because it explains the reasons why the Word of God became flesh in the person of Jesus. Uh, and he starts with the creation and fall and explains why and how God saved humanity from its sinfulness. Uh, so uh, perhaps we can just uh, finish by saying that, that Athanasius is really important for us uh, as an example of defending our faith uh, no matter the cost. You know, to be exiled five times, a total of 20 years from his city, uh, to be to be faced with with death uh, on a regular basis, uh, he he must have had a strong conviction that that the faith was was genuine and that he must have had a deep trust in the Lord. Uh, and so, uh, this doesn't mean that that we we blindly you know, offer ourselves up to to be uh, to be killed. But we, we need to constantly look and see uh, what, is, what is worth defending in our faith and choosing the right battles. Okay? Athanasius did flee. Okay? He escaped at times. But he still fought the battle. And I think this is a good indication for us as to how we can approach the spiritual life. Sometimes there are battles that we are not called to fight. Okay. Sometimes we have to allow God some space and time to work, but we need to constantly be in discernment to work out which battles to take on. So let's take maybe a five-minute break. That was Kevin Wagner with Church Fathers from St. Justin Martyr to St. Anthony. For more from the Immaculata Mission School, visit cradio.org.au.